The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 13 through 41. It can be found on page 921 in the Black Bibles. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be the king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, 
nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and so corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, Tess. Such a wonderful reading of God's scriptures. Good morning. Uh, what's Christianity all about? That's kind of a big question. What is it about, or what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Perhaps you have not heard much about the Christian faith, or perhaps you actually have this question. Or perhaps you're in church, or you have been in church for a while, and you haven't really, actually haven't think too much about it recently. Or maybe you know the answer, but in a sense you desire to go back to the basics of what it means. Well, in no way am I pretending to be able to bring a comprehensive answer to it, 
But I believe that the passage that we just read gets to the very core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. And regardless of where you are in your walk with Jesus, or even if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, I think this story challenges all of us to at least consider the question thoughtfully. Now, most of what we read is actually a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached at a synagogue in Antioch near the region of Pisidia. As I was preparing for this sermon, I actually just thought about reading Paul's sermon. But then I realized I might be accused of plagiarism for using somebody else's sermon, so I decided not to do that. But one of the things that really struck me is that it's actually a three-point sermon. The proof text that I have been looking for my entire life for only doing three-point sermons is right here in Acts chapter 13. Well, Paul probably think of it that way, but it does seem to have three main sections. The Apostle Paul describes first how the history of Israel in the Old Testament anticipated the coming of Jesus, verses 16 to 25. Secondly, he describes how the coming of Jesus, particularly through his death and resurrection, fulfills the expectations and the promises of the Old Testament, verses 26 to 37. And thirdly, thirdly, he calls his audience to respond to Jesus' coming, verses 38 to 41. Therefore, what I would like for us to do this morning is basically walk together through these three sections. But as we do that, I would like for us to keep in mind the question, what is Christianity all about, or what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Now, before I pray, let me just give you a brief historical recap of what's going on in the story of Acts, or how did Paul and Barnabas got to this synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia. At the beginning of chapter 13, we find Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, but there is another city named Antioch. I recently learned that there were about 16 cities using the same name in the Roman Empire. So that Antioch, where chapter 13 begins, was in northern Syria. And it is a key city in the book of Acts because that's the city where many Christians moved to after leaving Jerusalem when the persecution um, erupted after Stephen was killed. You can read about it in Acts chapter 7. So some of them, when they moved, they shared the good news of Jesus to no one except Jews because they weren't fully aware that the gospel of Jesus is for all nations. There were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene that also came to Antioch and shared the good news to the Gentiles, that is, to the non-Jews. And the Lord's hand was with them, and many came to believe in Jesus. So the church in Antioch became a thriving, multi-ethnic community, and what we will call a resource church, because it became the center from where the gospel expanded to many other places in the Roman Empire. It actually replaced Jerusalem as the hub of Christianity or of the Christian movement at that time. Now, in that church, while the church was fasting and praying and worshiping, the Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Saul, two of the key leaders of that church, to take the gospel, to leave and take the gospel to other places. So they prayed for them, and Paul, Barnabas, and his cousin, John Mark, left and sailed to the island of Cyprus. That's where we started last Sunday. But after Cyprus, they sail north to what is now Turkey. So they arrive at a place called Perga, where John Mark 
called it quits and went back to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas moved further inland to another place called Antioch, which was near the border of the Roman province of Pisidia. Therefore, it was known as Antioch towards or in Pisidia. So they began in Antioch, Syria. They crossed to Cyprus, and then they crossed north to Antioch, Pisidia. Now, spoiler alert, this area where they are about to begin planting the gospel and then seeing churches being born out of that was just outside a province called Galatia. If it sounds familiar, it's because a couple of years later, probably in a gap of time between Acts chapter 14 and 15, Paul will write them a letter to the churches in that area that is in the scriptures and is called Galatians. But that's further down the road. Here in Acts chapter 13, they are just arriving. And on the Sabbath day, Paul and Barnabas went into the local synagogue and they sat down. And after the two readings of the Old Testament, as it was the custom, the rulers invited them to share a word with the people. And that's when Paul stood up and began preaching this sermon that we are about to consider. But before we do that, let me pray. Lord, we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we open your word. Lord, we all struggle with unbelief, so help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I grew up learning the stories from the Old Testament, the story of Jonah and the big fish, the story of Noah and the ark, the story of David and Goliath. And probably because most of the children's Bibles always pick the same stories, from a young age, I became very familiar with all of them. However, I always read them as, or read them as disconnected stories that were meant to teach me something, like be brave or do not disobey. I never thought of these stories as being part of a unified and unfolding story that was not mainly about me, but about someone else. And perhaps when you listen to Paul's sermon in this passage that takes the form of a historical retrospect, you are tempted to think the same as I did. To think that Paul is speaking just a bunch of stories from here and there randomly with no sense of connection or flow to summarize the content of the Old Testament. But let me share with you three reasons why this is not true. First, the whole summary of God's dealing with Israel in the Old Testament that Paul is presenting in verses 16 to 25 has a unifying theme, God's covenant with Abraham. That is the underlying thread. You actually can't fully understand the meaning of the people being rescued from Egypt, nor the conquest of the promised land, nor David's kingship, without knowing that all these things are tied together to the covenant with Abraham and represent partial fulfillments of the promises of God. The story that Paul is describing here has to do with the promise to bless Abraham, to give him many descendants and to give them a land to rest and to prosper and to live under God's rule. It has to do with the promise to bless all the nations of the earth through one of Abraham's descendants. So the covenant is the one thing that Paul is talking about. And he's showing them how God has been at work 
to bring the promises of the covenant to fulfillment. So these are not disconnected stories. Secondly, Paul is actually doing a careful and structured and balanced presentation of Israel history. His summary actually hits on all the major stages of the story up to the time of David. The Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the conquest of the land, the time of the judges, the kingship under Saul, then the kingship under David. That's a careful, thoughtful, structured presentation of, the, of their history. But thirdly, and this is where I want to spend a few extra minutes, not only it has a unifying theme, not only it is a thoughtful, balanced, present summary of the relationship between God and Israel in the Old Testament, but it is also a purposeful summary, a purposeful summary. And let me explain what I mean by that. Paul is reading them or reminding the people in the synagogue the story of Israel. And if you look at the history, their history, Things seem to be going up, upwards, at least in general, and at least for a while. There were ups and downs, of course, but overall, if you read or reread the story, there was a sense of progress for Israel related to the promises of God. From being just a few, a small family, they became a great nation, many descendants, 12 tribes. From being slaves and then nomads in the wilderness to eventually having the promised land. From having no king and therefore everyone doing what was right in their own eyes to eventually having David as king. All these were partial fulfillments of God's promises. But if you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you might notice that Paul suddenly skips from David all the way to John the Baptist. That's about a thousand years of history that Paul is leaving out of their story. Because this is what happened. What happened after David is that things suddenly went down, went south very quickly for Israel. The tribes started to fight each other. They eventually split into two separate nations. Most of the kings after David were terrible, especially the ones in the north. Israel never fully conquered the land. Uh, eventually, um, they were expelled from the land. They were taken out of the land by other nations that conquered them because they abandoned the Lord. But even though things went south for Israel, the promises of God didn't go south. They kept pointing upward. So by skipping from David to John the Baptist, who was the immediate predecessor of Jesus, I believe that Paul is calling their attention to a better fulfillment, to a greater king that was to come. Paul is following the line of the promises of God. Now, before we talk about the coming of that greater king, think about Paul's purpose in retelling their story this way. No doubt, you know, their history shows that they were always a people in need of, of being rescued. That could have been the focus. Um, no doubt, their history shows that they were a, a stubborn people. You know, Paul even says in verse 18 that for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. That could have been the focus. However, the way Paul uses their history here is not so much a rebuke on their stubbornness as it is the case of Stephen's sermon back in Acts chapter 7. 
Paul's emphasis here is on the fading nature of the Old Testament gifts. On the fading nature of the Old Testament gifts. Paul wants them to see that even in their best experiences, whatever they got before Jesus was only a limited and temporary fulfillment of God's promises. Think, for example, on the land. Israel was liberated from Egypt and brought into the promised land. They were supposed to experience rest. It was called the land of their rest and live happily under God's rule. They got the land. But their grumbling hearts never changed and they never fully submitted to God's rule and they never fully conquered it. Eventually, just as Adam and Eve had been expelled from the garden many years before, Israel was also expelled from the promised land because of their disobedience. Therefore, the promise of the land and all that it represented, it needed to have a better fulfillment. But how? Well, this takes us to Paul's second point, the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and hopes, verses 26 to 37. This section is the focus of Paul's sermon. And he concentrates on two particular events, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. Now, there is a lot to explore here, but let's walk together through three main ideas. First, Paul is presenting the death of Jesus as a fact and as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus came in a way that didn't fit the expectations of the Israelites. They were looking for a different kind of savior. Their expectations didn't match with what the prophets had said about the coming Messiah. They didn't recognize Jesus and they condemned him unjustly. But even in doing that, they fulfilled what the prophets had said about Jesus. He was not worthy of death. He never did anything wrong. He was the perfect human being. And he was also God. And yet, they mock him and they crucify him. But this happened according to God's plan. It is interesting to think that some men listening to Paul in the synagogue that morning could have been eyewitnesses of the crucifixion of Jesus outside Jerusalem about 20 years before. So they know it happened, but they hadn't seen it as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and hope. So Paul is preaching about that. Secondly, talking about fulfillment, think on the hopes and the expectations that Paul is bringing up to surface in the first part of his sermon. And let me use King David as an example because he is mentioned several times. There was a prophecy that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever. And of course, Jesus comes from the line of David, so he is the fulfillment. But think for a moment on what King David meant for Israel. When Israel was already in the promised land, they wanted a king. A king that could defend them or will defend them in battle. So they pick a handsome king. They pick Saul, a candidate that looked very impressive to them. And God say, okay, that's what you want. Okay, that's what you get. Saul turned to be disobedient and a big failure. And when Israel was in that moment of being threatened by the enemies and their champion Goliath, Saul was clueless on what to do. 
But then God picked David, a man after God's heart. He was not the perfect king, but he came to be the best king, the best king in history. Every other king after David will always be compared to David as the standard of what a good ruler is supposed to be. And the people experienced peace and rest in the land with David. But one big problem, David died. He eventually died. So if you were an Israelite back then and your hopes to prosper and to live in peace under the best possible king were placed in David, the moment David died, your hopes also died. But why would the people place their hope in a king? I mean, isn't that foolish? Well, we're not that different because our hearts also long for the perfect king. We look for someone that will protect us and that will provide for us. We long for someone that will fight the fights we can fight. Someone that will defeat our enemies, including sickness and death. We long for someone we can trust completely and yet that won't betray us. We long for someone that will bring justice and will punish evil and yet who won't destroy us. We long for a king that will know us intimately by name and grant us his forgiveness. We also long for the perfect king. We long to live under his rule. The problem is that we look for him in all the wrong places. We look for him in things that can be destroyed, taken away, or die. We put our hopes and give our ultimate allegiance and give our hearts to many other things that at the end of the day only enslave us. We look for the perfect king in our jobs and careers and we think that if we sacrifice enough for them, our careers will protect us and will provide for us and will give us the rest that our hearts long for. We look for the perfect king in politics and we think that if we only get the right people in the right spot, then things will be all right. We look for the perfect king that will satisfy our hearts and our deepest longings in our spouses or in our children. However, none of that and none of them can fulfill our hopes. The good news is that the perfect king has come. The perfect king that we all long for, he has come and it's Jesus and by his death on the cross, he offers us his friendship. He offers us to live under his rule and reign. How do we know? Thirdly, how do we know that he's a true king and that he can actually fulfill his promises? How do we know we can trust him? Well, what Paul tells us here is because he rose from the dead. That's how we know. Now, let me give you a quick, imperfect illustration of what his resurrection means. Imagine that you're walking on the street and you see a, a check for, let's say, $100,000. Uh, and it has your name on it and a note that says it's a gift for you. Okay? So you're not sure that uh, if you should pick it up, but you think it might be a joke. But anyways, it's too good to be, to be true, right? And anyway, you pick it up, you put it in your wallet, you forget about it for a while. But then one day you're in the bank and, and you remember and you give it to the bank teller. And, you know, you're very sure that he will tell you that it's not even a real check or maybe it's a real check but the account doesn't have any funds. 
But then he actually just prints a receipt and says, you know, what they always say is like, what else can I do for you? So it's like, done, right? And at that moment, your heart stops. Because the check that promised you 100K, it just went through. It just went through. So that's kind of what the resurrection of Jesus means. His payment in our behalf was counted as valid. It went through. He proves that he is who he say he is. It means that Jesus' account had enough funds to fulfill his promises. His promises are all true and are credited to our account. So if this is what it means, what should we do about it? So this takes us to the last point of the sermon. The call to respond to Jesus, verses 38 to 41. Throughout Paul's sermon, Jesus is presented as a Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. He is the one in whom the promises of God are true. He is the fulfillment of our hopes and the perfect king, the perfect king that our hearts long for. He is the one that redeems us from the curse of the law. He is the one through whom complete forgiveness of sins is offered because he died in our place and rose again. So Paul's conclusion is an invitation to believe in Jesus, but it's also a warning not to ignore what God has done in him, not to ignore Jesus. Now, if you have been following the story of the book of Acts, just think for a second, who is preaching this sermon in that synagogue? It is Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus. A few years before, his life was going in the exact opposite direction. He wanted to destroy the followers of Jesus. He persecuted them violently. He was not seeking to become a believer. So what happened? Well, Jesus' resurrection. The resurrected Jesus appeared to him when he was on his way to Damascus. So he didn't become a follower of Jesus to have a better life or to improve a little bit his life or because it was convenient for him or because it was like the cool thing to do in that society. Becoming a Christian actually destroyed all that he had been building his entire life. He turned his life upside down. But he had no choice but to follow Jesus. Because his resurrection was true. So what do you do with that? And if you give a thoughtful consideration to it, you might come to the same conclusion. Everything hangs on Jesus' resurrection. In uh, the book, The Reason for God, Pastor Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. It all hangs on his resurrection. So if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, a good place to start considering the question thoughtfully is by doubting your doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. To say that the resurrection can't have happened because we know that that sort of thing doesn't actually happen, it is not a good argument because not even Christians will argue that that's a, you know, a common thing that happens once in a while. In a book called Surprised by Hope, Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright has a fantastic chapter uh, called The Strange Story of Easter. 
where he explores these kinds of uh, objections. It's a great chapter. And from a historical point of view, he affirms that there are two inevitable conclusions. First, Jesus' tomb really was empty. And secondly, the disciples did encounter him in ways that convinced them that he was not simply a ghost or hallucination. Both of these things are historical conclusions and are necessarily true. And neither one by itself would be sufficient to consider the resurrection of Jesus a historical event. Because on one hand, if Jesus had not been raised, you know, then sooner or later somebody will go to the grave and collect his bones. And that will have been the end of it. You know, that will uh, disapprove the idea that he was alive. To follow the idea that, well, but he, the disciples were speaking about, he's alive in our hearts, he's alive in our minds. Um, it's also not uh, a valid option because nobody in the Jewish world will call that idea, the idea of being alive in our hearts and our memories, a resurrection event. N.T. Wright, who is also a, uh, an expert in first century Judaism, explains that resurrection in the first century meant someone physically totally dead, becoming physically totally alive again. So if you only had the disciples' experience and testimonies, but the body was still in the grave, that would have been considered an hallucination on the side of the disciples, not a resurrection. However, on the other hand, if the empty tomb had not been accompanied by the many testimonies of seeing Jesus alive, that will have simply produced all kinds of conspiracy theories. You know, it's like, well, the body's not there. Maybe the gardeners took it, or maybe the Pharisees took it, or maybe the disciples took it away. Um, but how? How would the frightened disciples that abandoned Jesus before the crucifixion will suddenly be brave enough to steal the body that was protected by a Roman guard? And why will they dedicate the rest of their lives, and most of them even give their lives to preach that Jesus was alive unless they were fully convinced about it. Why would somebody like Paul, that wasn't seeking to become a follower of Jesus, suddenly give up everything to follow Jesus? And how else would you explain the rise of early Christianity? Antia Wright concludes, no other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism toward the Christian witness that can satisfactory account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. The alternative accounts are actually remarkably thin. History appears to leave us shivering on the shore. This last line is actually an important remark. As important as a historical argument or evidence is, it only pushes us as far as to leave us at the shore. It forces us to ask the questions to which the only possible answer is the good news of Jesus, that they are true. But it is actually by faith that you have to embrace Jesus as your Savior and King. It is actually by faith. And if you do that, he will forgive your sins. And you will be put in the right with God. And you will be set free from condemnation.
and you will be set free from the need of being your own king and from serving false kings. And he will free you from living as is this life. It's all there is. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we seek for ultimate hope in many things that were not designed to give us that. We long to live under the reign and rule of the perfect king, and yet we look for him in all the wrong places. I pray, help us. Help us to see Jesus as the good king, as the perfect king we have been waiting for. Help us to believe that through his death and resurrection, he accomplished our redemption. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.